Welcome to the Fitbox Podcast. This is your host, Joseph Frankie. Glad you're here listening. On our podcast, we talk about two main things. First and foremost, we interview members of Fitbox so that way you can hear their stories about how they're repaying debt, how they're saving for retirement, buying homes, all this type of stuff, really to give you motivation and some different ideas. That's the first thing we talk about. The second thing our podcast do is we take individual finance topics and go through them in more detail so that way you can say, does this apply to me and how does this apply to my plan? So if you have questions or you want to sign up for Fitbucks, you can do so in the show notes, fitbucks.com, build your profile, schedule a call. We'll be talking to you soon. Enjoy the episode. All right, welcome to the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, welcome there as well. Uh, today we have a special episode. Um, we have someone coming on that is i mean he's basically the guru of student loans especially if you're a student out there trying to get financial aid scholarships a parent trying to fund your child's education he's been interviewed on numerous high profile shows uh quoted in over ten thousand publications he's an author of uh, five best-selling uh, uh books been on a number of different websites started up a bunch of different websites um he's testified in front of congress which must have been really really fun um his name mark cantuist thanks for joining us um welcome glad to have you on the show thanks for having me yeah i'll start there uh i've had to deal with irs stuff where i testify for irs and that's nerve-wracking um i'm I'm sure having to testify in front of congress that must have been really a a lot of fun (laughs) it was interesting (laughs) good stuff good stuff um well let's just start started i mean with the whole student loan stuff how did you even just some background on yourself? How did you even get into that area? Was it just like one morning you're just like, hey, I just I want to dive into student loan and college financial planning? Or how did you just come about that whole entire topic? Well, growing up, I was one of those kids who won a gazillion dollars in scholarships uh, in math and science. And I was affiliated with a program started by the Admiral H.G. Rickover Foundation, now the Center for Excellence in Education. And uh, I compiled a list of scholarships for math and science students. And then in 1992, Prentice Hall heard about this book and asked us if we'd like to publish a book. And that came out in 93, right around when the web had started. And rather than answer the same question again and again, I posted the answers to a website called FinAid and responded to the questions I got by email by saying, well, your question is answered on this web page. Here's how you get out on the web. And then I started proactively answering questions before they were asked. And then the website took on a life of its own. And uh, and it grew very, very rapidly. And um, I'm one of the few people who's actually read the entire Higher Education Act, also Internal Revenue Code in 1986, uh, as well as all the regulations and sub-regulatory guidance, the Federal Student Aid Handbook. Uh, and I remember most of what I read, and sometimes I draw interesting connections that lead to loopholes. Yeah, and there's a lot of loopholes. We'll be talking about a handful of them today. Um, it's funny that you read that that stuff. When I was 18, I, I read that basically the IRS task code for like businesses. And people think I'm crazy. So I, 
Um, I, I know what you mean when you go start reading through it, which is funny that the HEA stuff, I always wonder how many congressmen have actually even read through it. Um, so, um, you know, kudos to you to, to read through that. Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some of those loopholes. Um, you know, before we get there, though, because we always get questions from undergrads and grad students about scholarships and grants, all right, because nobody wants to take student loans, so they're trying to figure out other ways. Um, you know, what's your advice on getting scholarships and grants or like where, what location would you go to, like which websites or whatnot to say, hey, like these are good, you know, source of scholarships that you can get. These are good grants, so on and so forth. You should focus on free money first because it doesn't have to be repaid. Uh, and to find scholarships and fellowships, there are a variety of free scholarship matching websites out there. And the emphasis is on free. You shouldn't pay money to get money. If you have to pay money to get money, it's probably a scam. Uh, I was involved in the creation of fastweb.com, which is still the most popular scholarship search and fellowship search website. Another one that's good is the College Board's Big Future website. And I encourage people to search two databases because you'll see a lot of overlap among the databases and that'll make you less prone to paying someone money because they claim to be better. Yeah, we, uh, I really want to emphasize that too to the listeners. I mean, we, I hear scams every day. Like literally I get an email or a message on Facebook or, or Instagram being like, I got this in the mail or I got this. Like, should I do this? It's like, no. Like you shouldn't have to pay money for this stuff. So, you know, thanks for, for bringing that up. The, the other side of that too, is I get a lot of times, uh, this is the first time I've ever taken loans. You know, what, what do I need to know about this process or how do I do this? And, and I know there's like an entire process of going through it and everything, but if there was one or two things that you said, look, these are the key things that do, you know, to those first time borrowers, you know, what would you suggest or what would you recommend to them? Well, you should borrow federal first because federal student loans are cheaper, more available, and have better repayment terms. And you should also not go overboard in borrowing money. Just because you can borrow doesn't mean you should. You should aim to have total student loan debt at graduation that is less than your annual starting salary. If total debt is less than annual income, you should be able to repay your student loans in 10 years or less. And that's a good rule of thumb to stick to. Yeah. Absolutely. And and with the talking about repayment stuff, this whole new save program is out there now. The President Biden's new income driven repayment plan. And last week we were chatting and you brought up a way to describe it that I haven't heard anybody describe it before. And I was like, that's actually a really good way of describing it, especially for undergrads. And that is basically it's like a grant after you graduate. Can yeah, it's you a dive, grant after the fact. Yeah. Can, can you dive into that and explain that for our listeners? Right. So there are four income-driven repayment plans, ICR, IBR, pay, and repay. Save is a new version of the repay plan, which cuts the monthly payment on undergraduate debt in half. And from that perspective, I repaying the amount total amount that you'd be repaying under the save plan for undergraduate debt is less than what you would pay under a standard 10-year repayment plan the biden administration is essentially giving you some uh, a discount on the debt uh 
which is uh, it's a grant after the fact. Yeah, we especially see that being true when we run scenarios for like undergrads. Um, the adjustment to the poverty level, like with the what they do to do like hardship and all that stuff, and how they calculate the monthly payment, that that's it's massive going from one hundred fifty percent to two hundred twenty five percent. You know, and then taking that pay going from ten percent down to five percent of your gross pay, it's you know to your point, it, you're basically paying pennies on the dollars like that you owe. Um, but there's still that tax right at the end of it. And that negates some of it. Now that tax has been suspended through 2025. Um, one of the questions I have for you is we've heard nothing about it since they did that when president Biden first became president. Have you heard anything? Cause I get questions all the time. Like, are they going to extend that? Are they going to make it permanent? What's your thoughts on it? Have you heard any rumblings on that? Have what's your opinion on it? Um, just in general, have you heard anything? Well, in President Biden's budget proposal, he has called for making it permanent. Uh, the tax-free status is something that both Democrats and Republicans can potentially agree on. Um, Democrats like making college costs and student loans easier to afford. Republicans like tax cuts. Um, so there is the potential for people to get together and agree on it. The real challenge is the Higher Education Act of 1965 is supposed to be reauthorized every four or five years. It's been 15 years since the last reauthorization. And reauthorization is often when you see proposals like this implemented. And we have yet to see any movement in Congress to make um, these uh, tax-free status extended um, either for another five years or uh, made permanent. Now, tax bills come out of the appropriations as opposed to education committee, but I, it is potentially something that Congress could do, but I haven't heard a lot of noise about it. I, things tend to occur at the last minute, so we might not hear about any changes until 2025. Yeah. And a lot depends on the makeup of Congress. Split control of Congress, they have to compromise to get anything done. Um, if uh, Democrats get control of the House and the Senate with a supermajority in the Senate, then you might see more provisions like this being enacted. Yep. Yeah. My, like you said, oftentimes Congress doesn't act till the last minute or there's a problem. Um, my, Short answer to that, like when I'm in webinars, like or for universities and stuff, and I get asked that question, my, and I get your opinion on this thought is that like income driven repayment plans, a lot of people didn't start going on them until like the Obama years. So you're talking like 2009, 2010, 2011 is when they really started to accelerate um, in terms of the number of people using them. And so if you look at like pays you earn and IVR, th those are 20 years, new IVR. So if you look at like 2010 was when that explosion, that means that the first ones are starting to get it forgiven starting in like around 2020 or 2030. I mean, and so you're going to have all these people that are having this thing forgiven with the tax bill hitting 2030, 2031, 2032, 2033. And I could see it becoming a problem then 
And so if Congress kicks the can down a road in 2025, they might take it up more seriously around 2030 because that's, you know, when it's going to be hitting hard. And I even look back at um, the mortgage crisis when that happened in 08 and loans were getting forgiven and foreclosed on, people had to pay taxes on that. And then that was a problem. So government, the Congress passed a temporary law to suspend that too. So that's where I kind of think about that. I mean, your thoughts on that, do you see it potentially kicking that can down the road on that until it becomes a bigger problem for more people? Well, ICR became available in 1994 and 95. And the president's uh, recent forgiveness for at 25 years is mostly borrows in ICR because it's the only of the four income-driven repayment plans which has reached the 25-year mark. ICR is 25 years. IBR became available in 2009 and is 25 years. Pay became available in 2011 uh, and is 20 years. And repay became available in 2015 and is 20 or 25 years, depending on whether you have undergraduate or graduate debt. And now we have the save plan coming on board uh, fully by next year Um, and that uh, you may if you start off with less debt you may get forgiveness after as little as 10 years Mm -hmm. so um and we are going to see more pressure on congress to do something now the 804,000 borrowers who are getting 39 billion dollars of forgiveness because they've been in repayment for 25 years those um repayment plans that that seems almost like it's the bulk of borrowers in icr and part of the goal of the biden administration's recent regulatory changes to create the save plan is to get rid of icr and potentially ibr uh, and pay now certain things they can't get rid of because they're enacted in statute but I mean, that's the goal. They want to simplify it so that there's just one income-driven repayment plan. Because having four income-driven repayment plans is very confusing for borrowers. Yep. Now, if they can get it down to just one, that will be an improvement. People will be able to understand just what they um, what their options are. Yep. And ideally, we, we'd want to have Congress pass a law so that there's one income-driven repayment plan and there's one standard 10-year repayment plan, and that's it. Right now, there's 12 different repayment plans, which is quite confusing for borrowers. Yeah, and I think that would be a huge milestone. You talked about, like, Congress, you know, agreeing on certain things. I actually saw, what was it, a week ago, where they had put together a bill to, the Republicans did, like, with student loans, which obviously was going nowhere, but... One of their things was also reducing it down to the standard plan and repay. So it's like, hey, you guys agree on that, right? Like, can, yeah, can we get that done? I've done analysis of all the bills that have been introduced in the last 15 years and identified what everybody seems to agree on. And there's a substantial amount of provisions that they do agree on that they could and put together a reauthorization that includes all of that. The problem is when they introduce legislation where there's agreement, they always throw in something where there's disagreement. So they have to get together and compromise. And it's got to be about the policy, not the politics. Yep. 
the you know, like another bill that was put out there, I think Democrats put it out there that a few days ago about zero percent interest rates. I mean, on things like that, like you said, there's a bunch of overlap. What are ones that you've seen that you actually think might get included? Like, do you see anything where it's like, hey, look, we might do this soon? Or is there just, yeah, no, until they get together, it's not going to have anything done. Well, zero percent interest rate is in a way a very cynical piece of legislation because most of the cost of the loans is not in the interest that borrowers pay. It's in the um, the principal that you have to repay. Yeah. Um, it's it's often uh, people misinterpret and think, oh, it's, it's just an interest problem. But the reality is that even if there were no interest, you'd still have to pay back the principal. And that would be a challenge for many borrowers, especially people who drop out of college, um, where they have the debt, but not the degree that can help them repay the debt. Yeah. If, if you're in charge of it with all the knowledge you have, right. And, and let's just say a congressman came to you and the president came to you and said, Hey, we're going to enact anything that you say that needs to be done from, let it be the system of how to get loans, how loans are created. What are like one or two things that you personally would like to see, see done that you think would solve a lot of the problems. Well, I'd like to see the Pell Grant tripled immediately. That would be enough to eliminate the need for most low-income students to borrow to pay for education. So if you're low-income, you shouldn't have to borrow to pay for your college education. And loans should only be a matter of choice, not a matter of necessity. So if you're going to a higher-cost college, well, then maybe you have to borrow to pay for it. But if you're pursuing a college education uh, and you're low income, you shouldn't have to borrow to pay for it. So I'd like one of these no loans financial aid policies to be universal among people who are low income. Um, I'd like to see the loan programs drastically simplified. So there's one income driven repayment plan and one standard repayment plan and it's automated like it is in other countries so that you don't have uh, all this confusing mess that you have to deal with. Um, and in fact, I'd like to see the loan payments uh, handled through the withholding system I mean, so that you don't have to think to you know, pay back your loans. I mean, you're much more likely to pay back your loans if it's involuntary. And if it's, you, you, if it's involuntary, you quickly get used to having less money in your bank account. But the real problem isn't one, a student loan problem. It is a college completion problem. Students who drop out of college are four times more likely to default on their student loans than students who graduate. Among students in bachelor degree programs, they're 95 times more likely. So it's, it's really is a problem that in, you take on too much debt and you don't get to the finish line. Yeah. Yeah. We've had, so we have a in-school technology that we've been beta testing and we've actually had a few universities reach out to us because what the technology does is it, it allows you to plan throughout your entire undergrad, like cost and everything. And one of the things that they see people drop out, one of the reasons is because they don't plan appropriately. Mm -hmm. 
and they get their loan money and then they spend it and they don't have enough to last the last few weeks of the of the quarter or the semester. And then all of a sudden, you know, they get credit card debt and they do that again and they end up dropping out. So it's, it's they don't have that money. So they want us to show them how to like make sure they're budgeting to, to not just blow that money. Um, but yeah, a lot of people don't realize that when they talk about defaults and everything with the amount of debt that's under $10,000 and stuff, it's like, yeah, to your point, it's because people don't finish. Like if you were to finish and not drop out. Um, so yeah, that's a, a really good point. Um, one of the comments I get from people all the time is, you know, the way higher education is, is set up. It, something's got to change. Like some, I, I don't agree or disagree with that, but my question to you is if you look out over the next like 15, 20, 25 years, if, if things stay the way they are right now, what do you see potentially changing in the future of, of higher education and just everything else? Well, the one thing that needs to change is college needs to become more affordable. Yeah. And we can't continue on the same path that we're going on right now where I mean, some colleges are charging over $100,000 a year. Um, now, you should be entitled to a college education, but not necessarily the most expensive college education, but you should still be able to afford to pay. And even at an in-state public college, the costs are growing too much for most people to be able to afford it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I went to a, a state university in California and I graduated, I don't remember when I graduated, 2005. And I think the total cost of attendance, I was on scholarship for most of it, but the total cost of attendance, even if I hadn't taken loans out for the entire thing, would have been like thirty or $40,000. And I talked to undergrads now that are graduating from that same university. And it's like, how much in debt are you getting out? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And not only that, but at that university, instead of, I was out in four years because I was an athlete. So I got priority registration the average graduate from that university is six years and it's like because it's so impacted they can't even get classes so it gets dragged out so then they kind of start taking more and more cost of living it's just yeah and i see that because the question i get a lot of times too is from grad students like do you think this graduate degree is worth it so like physical therapists and slps and pas and it's like, when you look at the delta between income in those professions, plus the reduced risk to those professions, it's like that cost for those programs. Yes, I could justify it that it's worth it, but you have so much debt from undergrad that doesn't justify the undergrad income. That's where I see the, the big mismatch too. And yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit crazy, but on that thoughts about 15 to 20 years out, um, we talked to a lot of new parents as well um people that have newborns maybe they've got children underneath five years old um you know what are your thoughts on 529 plans uh covid esas for can you describe those for the for the listeners that don't even know what they are um can you touch on those so these are college savings plans and the premise is that it is cheaper to save than to borrow so if you start saving from birth about a third of your college savings goal will come from the earnings. And you, if your goal is to save one third of future college costs, and you can do it. Um, 
the the challenges that I mean, some people may need to save more than a third of college costs, but the one third rule seems to still be a practical rule because like any major life cycle expense, you spread out the costs over time. One third from past income, which is savings, one third from current income and financial aid, and then one third from future income in the form of loans. It's just a rough cut, but it works out to be, I mean, the 529 plans is a good way of saving for college education. You just set it up and forget about it. And when it's time for your child to enroll in college, and they'll have a nice nest egg. Now, the opposite issue, which is that some of today's parents will still be in debt in 20, 25, or even 30 years when their children go to college. Yeah. Yep. And I mean, we see that probably two or three times a day with parents in that same boat already. And to your point, it's going to get, you know, even worse. Have you actually I got the question yesterday from somebody about Coverdale ESAs. Have you seen that used very much at all? I, I, from my recollection, I I've traditionally seen Coverdale's used for more like like high school education, like private school type of stuff. I haven't really seen anybody use them in a long time, but have you seen those at all? Or what do you, what's your insight on those? Well, they're less popular because the amount you can save per year is only $2,000. So you, you can't reach one third of future college costs uh, necessarily with a Coverdell. Uh, I've seen it, as you say, more popular with K to 12 education which means there's less time horizon to save. Um, and there have been proposals to get rid of them. Now, the reason why some families like them is because you get more control of the investment, but all you really need is an S&P 500 fund and a low risk investment fund, which most 529 plans offer. Uh, and you can then use that to mix an asset allocation that starts off aggressive when the child's young and as it child approaches college age, it becomes less and less aggressive. Now, I actually have a patent on a new method of uh, having such a dynamic uh, age-based asset allocation. The, uh, the idea is that most of the 529 plans uh, start off um, with a high percentage of equities and then drop off from that too quickly. And my patent covers in delaying the drop-off uh, in that asset allocation for as long as say, seven or 10 years, um, it doesn't appreciably increase the risk while it does improve the return on investment to the equivalent of about a full percentage point per year. Yeah, yeah. no, definitely. And on the 529 plans, two more questions. I and I get all the time. So a lot of people get confused on this because they'll be like, well, you know, do I have to do the California state 529 plan, the Texas one, this one, that one, you know, do they have to do the state that they live in? Does it even mean anything on each state? Like what, what does that mean if I'm sitting there looking at the difference between all these different 529 plan options? Well, you can invest in any state's 529 plan and then use that money to go to college in any state. 
uh, and you can change the beneficiary of the 529 plan to a relative of the uh, beneficiary. So if the child decides not to go to college or is disabled and can't go to college, well, then you have more options. Um, the main considerations are, do and does your state 529 plan offer a state income tax break on contributions to the state's plan? And what are the fees charged by the state's plan? And considering that, you may get um, better return on investment if you um, consider your state's plan, if it has a state income tax deduction. Um, otherwise, like California doesn't have a state income tax deduction. Uh, they almost had one, but it got vetoed. Um, you can uh, switch to um, use any 529 plan. Just have to consider what are the fees and what are the uh, state tax breaks. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, here's a, you talked about like loopholes earlier with student loans. Here's one that my, my cousin brought up to me about 529 plans. He asked me this the other day and I was just like, you can try it. I don't know. Okay. So my daughter's six years old and he's younger than me, but he's like, you know, we're probably going to have children in like four or five years. He's like, can I open up a 529 plan in your daughter's name? And then when we have our child switching it back in, the, in my child's name, and I was like, well, you can switch it to a relative. I don't know if it has to be like brother and sister type of relative. But well, I, it, it could be to a cousin. Yeah. Um, and uh, one thing that I've done personally is I started saving for my children's college education before they were born. Yeah. Yeah. So what this is think, a similar idea. Yeah. I've also had people think talk about like saying, well, should I use a Roth IRA instead? Um. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, a Roth IRA is restricted to retirement. And if you take the tax-free return on contributions, you avoid the taxes, but it may negatively impact need-based financial aid. Yeah. And now you, you can actually roll over uh, leftover money in the 529 plan into a Roth IRA in the name of the beneficiary. So that may solve that concern about well, I mean, what if the child doesn't go to college or what if they don't go to college but don't need all the money? Well, it gives you a head start on saving for retirement. Yeah, and that's actually, that's a really good point about the 529 plan being rolled over to the Roth IRA because I've also had people ask me, because we're here in Texas, right? So you probably, you may know about this plan, but Texas has this prepaid tuition plan mm -hmm. where like you could buy units now and so they stay at the same price and you basically prepay for your child's education, but they're pretty restrictive because you have to go to a, a qualifying school in Texas. Um, and so it, it's tough because it's like, well, you're basically telling your kid you're going to this university. How do you know that, right? With the 529 plan, like you said, it can go anywhere. Um, and then if they don't use the money, you can roll it over. So uh, have you seen those types of programs, by the way? Well, there's about a dozen prepaid tuition plans. Texas has actually had several in the past that have closed because of, uh, and they promised a certain return on investment. And when they fell short of that, they had to close it to new investment. Yeah. Um, so then the prepaid tuition plans tend to get squeezed in two directions. And when there's an economic downturn, the return on investment falls short of the money needed to pay for that future college costs. 
And also, I mean, when you have an economic downturn, uh, you tend to have public college tuition increasing at double-digit rates. So the returns aren't there, and the costs are going up, and so then they have actuarial shortfalls. Um, but and you can take money that's in a prepaid tuition plan and roll it over into a 529 plan. Uh, you, um, the rollover will be at the refund value, which may be very limited, maybe just the amount that you contributed and a capped amount of uh, return on investment or even less. Yeah. So that that's a problem with it, but at least you can get the money out and put it in a 529 plan. Yeah. Uh, you put the money in a 529 plan and then later on, maybe you roll it into a prepaid tuition plan, though there are restrictions on that. Yep. Um, you know, fast forwarding, I'll talk about a little bit about loan forgiveness. We, uh, you know, PSLF is the big one that's out there. You know, I, like most people know about public service loan forgiveness. What are other sources of loan forgiveness that you've seen, let it be through states, different loan programs, like the Air Force or teachers loan forgiveness? Like which ones have you seen out there that are prominent as well as ones that people typically don't hear of? Well, in addition to public service loan forgiveness, there's teacher loan forgiveness. There are a variety of military student loan forgiveness programs, such as um, if you're in an eight-year medical program, the Air Force or the Army will pay for your education in exchange for service afterwards. And it can be a really good deal because the service is, and they will pay your medical malpractice premiums, pay you a good salary for a doctor, uh, and your housing may be covered. Uh, so it's, it's a, in a way, it's a pretty good deal. And no, you're not going to be cannon fodder. You're, you might be working on a military base as a doctor or a surgeon. There's some, which one is it? I forgot the name of it, where it's like you do two years of service and they give you combined, I want to say it's like forty or $50,000 to pay towards your loans. So that's, it's not forgiveness, but they get payments towards it. Um, it's a sort of plan, military student loan repayment plan. Mm -hmm. And it's up to 65000 I think. Depends on the service, but uh, I mean, for enlisting, you will get... As part of your enlistment, you'll get fifty, sixty thousand dollars to repay your student loans. Yeah. Do you, do you see like there are some through like Indian Health Services that are similar to that? Do you see those being used very often by people? Are they very prominent? Yeah, they're they're, they're quite popular, and it's an effective recruiting tool to get people to work um, in these national need areas. Yeah. No, that's a. Uh... Good insight on that. I tell people all the time, there's, especially going into the into the army or the the armed services. It's like there's a lot of different plans out there. Like, you know, dig in because you and try to research them as much as possible because there's some really good programs that I've seen, especially for healthcare workers that can forgive a significant amount of uh, money on that. You brought up, you know, going through the HEA and loopholes, just connecting different things. I mean, there's ones, for example, like Parent Plus loans, the double consolidation that's going away, what, in 2025? Um, mm -hmm. There's a handful of other ones. What are the most prominent loopholes that that you see that borrowers can take advantage of? 
Well, I mean, the income-driven repayment plans for many borrowers are, are effectively a loophole because they make the payments much more affordable. Mm -hmm. Now, that double consolidation is going away, but borrowers who have parent plus loans can still get income contingent repayment by consolidating the parent plus loan. So if you need income-driven repayment plan, there is ICR available. And uh, if you're in a pursuing a public service job, you can get public service loan forgiveness, which forgives the remaining debt after 10 years. Yeah, perfect, perfect, perfect. Um, one last topic. I, just, I, I think this is Australia, but you had brought up some of the changes that you'd like to see made. Like, I think in Australia, and correct me if I'm wrong, don't they have like, it's really just income-based repayment and that's the only repayment plan and they take it directly from your, paycheck i might be wrong on that but don't they have a system that's similar to that yeah it's taken from it's part of your taxes um and after a number of years the debt is forgiven um and that's very similar to the income driven repayment plans except it's much more efficient because you don't have to um remember to make the payments it's done automatically yep perfect 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 um you know, other valid student loans, just, you know, some fun before we end. Just like for the listeners, you know, one one thing about you that that, you know, most people don't know about or just outside of student loans. Like, what do you have fun doing? Like, what else are you involved in? Um, yeah, just one just random thing. <laughs> I always like ending podcasts on that. Well, I show and breed Cornish Rex cats. They have a curly coat, and one of my cats is a Supreme Grand Champion. Uh, her daughter is a champion and is working on uh, her Grand Champion. So that's something that I spend a lot of time. I'll be taking her to a cat show uh, this fall. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually pretty cool. My my daughter really wants a cat, and I'm like highly allergic to cats, and I'm like. <laughs> uh yeah i don't i don't think we could do that we're going to go stay with a friend of mine in about two months at her house and she has like five cats and i'm like uh oh <laughs> like this is gonna be interesting so uh for our listeners um you know if they just want to go and just read stuff that you've written about dive deeper into some of these topics um you know where can they find you at websites that they can find you at so on and so forth well, I've been writing a lot of articles for the College Investor website these days. So my current writing is often there. If they want to read my student aid policy, higher education policy papers. They can go to studentaidpolicy.com. And I also have a website about uh, private student loans called privatestudentloans.guru. Perfect. Perfect. Um, any other parting words you'd want to share or... No, I think we pretty much covered it. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, those of you listening to the podcast, be sure to subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe there as well. Um, thank you guys again, and we will uh, catch you on the next episode. Thanks.